This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. So welcome to session nine of our series on Luke Acts. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapters 11 to 13-ish, mostly in that section, but we're going to jump out a bit uh, from that section as well a little bit today. So last week we began to look at the political implications of Yeshua's confrontation with satanic powers. Uh, We saw that both Luke and the book of Revelation link Satan's power specifically with the Roman Empire. So in the book of Revelation it's Uh, the dragon that's particularly, you know, giving his power and authority to this beast. And of course, the beast is uh, described using this combination of imagery from Daniel's vision of the four beasts. And it's, uh, you know, in Revelation, we see the Roman Empire uh, referenced using this code name, Babylon, right? Second Peter or is it first Peter? One of the Peters uses the same term to speak of those who are in Babylon code word for Rome, right? So in light of this, when we read about Yeshua and the disciples casting out demons, this is precisely a clash between two kingdoms, between Satan's kingdom, which was manifest in Yeshua's day through the Roman Empire, and God's kingdom. And that comes out especially in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see more of that today, how these uh, these clashes with satanic forces take on a political uh, aspect in Luke's gospel in particular. So in this session, we're going to continue that train of thought. Uh, Last session, we focused more on understanding Satan's kingdom and the link with Rome. This session today, I want to focus more on God's kingdom. So that brings us to our opening question here that I want us to look at, and that is, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, particularly in Yeshua's teaching as, as uh, Yeshua, well, we've already seen throughout the gospel, Yeshua is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And before him, there was uh, John the Baptist. And, and then Yeshua tells his apostles to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? What does this look like? And uh, what exactly is uh, this teaching about, right? Um, So we'll talk about that a bit today. Uh, So let's let's do a bit of brainstorming here. I'm not looking for just the right answer, but I want us to uh, come up with what are some possible answers to this question? What is the kingdom of God that Yeshua taught? If you did a random poll of Christians and theologians and scholars out there, what sorts of answers might you get if you asked this question? Well, I think that the, what he's referring to is the, the kingdom that was uh, prophesied that it would rule on David's throne. However, I'm not sure that this is the, the typical Christian view of a, of a kingdom here on earth um, you know, on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Right, yeah. So we could say Davidic monarchy, right? Right. Um, so so that's, that's one possible answer, and I happen to think that's a correct answer. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah. What other sorts of answers might people give? If you ask them, what's the kingdom of God that Yeshua taught? Some might say it's a spiritual kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. A spiritual kingdom. Okay. So yeah, let's unpack that a little bit. What, um, you know, what, what all might be involved in a spiritual kingdom is, is so this, um, you know, this could be seen as maybe uh, correcting errant Jewish eschatology that looked for a literal kingdom. You know, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would defeat Rome and instead Messiah, Jesus came and established a, a, a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. What, what else? Well, he taught, Yeshua taught to turn the other cheek, blessed are the meek, um, things that were kind of opposite of what people thought. Yeah. So we could maybe sum that up as a, a, revelation, a revolutionary new ethic. So, and that could be, you know, part of a, a spiritual kingdom is he didn't, he didn't come preaching a literal kingdom, but a, a new way of living, right? That's one, uh, one possible take on it that people might give. What else? Is there anything else that comes to mind here? Yeah, uh, maybe similar to that last one is just uh, like some theologians would say that it's the, the, the church is the kingdom of God. So the modern, yes. uh, you know, like the way we, the community of believers coming together is the kingdom of God. And that's the fulfillment of, that's as good as it gets. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, no, that's a good one. So, so the kingdom of God is, is a, new, a new people of God that Yeshua came to establish, right? Uh, and, and you could see how this could really tie in with certain forms of replacement theology where this, this new kingdom has come to replace the old people, the Jews. Now we have a new multi-ethnic people called the church. That's the kingdom, right? So, you know, you know sometimes people talk about we're out uh, building the kingdom of God, right? That's our, that's our job as, as followers of Yeshua. We use this kind of language, right? And for some people, what that means is we're building the church, the way some Christians use that kind of language. So, yeah, I think that's definitely one answer you might hear. Anything else? I think also tying into that, I'm just, I was just going to kind of add to that, the church, like, the, for example, the... Uh, Jehovah's Witness, their meeting places, they're called the Kingdom Halls, right? Mm. Called the Kingdom Hall, I think, is where they meet. Yeah. So they're, they're seeing that as being the kingdom. The other thing I was thinking of, too, with regards to the spiritual kingdom, and uh, this is just something I don't know if I necessarily believe this in totality, but it's something that is taught in the church in some... In some uh, maybe just in some churches and that is that jesus came to take away the power of satan that that satan was the ruler of the earth and that now the now jesus has taken over that and he has established the kingdom here on earth with him as head right so jesus came to destroy satan's authority 
something like that. And, and uh, yeah, re- reclaim leadership over the earth and over humanity. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, you know, other, maybe another question that might lead us on more rabbit trails here is, is it a, when Yeshua proclaimed the kingdom, was he proclaiming something in the present or was he proclaiming something in the future? Right? So is this, is this talking about an eschatological kingdom, the end time uh, kingdom, or is this talking about something that happened and started at Yeshua's first coming? So anyway, uh, this is, this has been good. Um, that's a good starting place anyway. We'll uh, take up this question again in just a little bit, but um, I wanted us to at least start thinking about this. And um, before we dive into Luke, sort of think about what, what are some of the options that, that you most commonly hear. Okay. I want to, before we dive into Luke, look a little bit about what, what is the kingdom of God in the Tanakh. Now, we don't actually see this phrase, kingdom of God. Uh, that phrase only appears in the apostolic scriptures. We see it quite often, actually. Uh, we also see the alternative phrase, kingdom of heaven, which appears only in Matthew's gospel. So that's used in places where Matthew uses the phrase, kingdom of heaven. The other gospels are going to use the phrase, kingdom of God, when there's a parallel, right? Okay, but before we go there, I want to uh, turn to Psalm 89. If you have your Bible handy, uh, why don't you open it to Psalm 89? And this Psalm comes at probably the darkest point in the book of Psalms. Now, uh, some scholars have suggested that the book of Psalms, that we have five five books in the book of Psalms, right? Um, and this, this comes right at the end of book three. You can see uh, at Psalm 90, right above it, it says book four. So we're right at the end of book three in Psalm 89. And a lot of scholars suggest that the five books of the Psalms are, the, the Psalms are arranged in such a way to follow the story of Israel. So in book one, it's practically all, Psalms of David, and it's all celebrating Davidic kingship, um, God's covenant with David, the establishment of the Davidic monarchy. The second book seems to feature themes that relate to the period of Israelite monarchy, right? uh, David and his successors going on. When we get to book three, we start to reach a, a very dark point in the book of Psalms. And this, this period seems to really reflect the period of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile, the Babylonian exile that took place. And in book four, then we start to see themes of restoration. And finally, book five is the rebuilding of the exilic community returning back to the land of Judea and establishing Jerusalem. And, and you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a rough, big picture sort of story that's being told as you read through. Like, these psalms aren't just arranged haphazardly. There's a, there's a reason behind why one psalm follows another and, and that sort of thing. So as we get to Psalm, um, psalm 89, actually, 
if you back up to Psalm 88, we're not going to read this psalm, but this psalm has to be the the darkest psalm in the Psalter. Actually, the last word of the psalm is darkness. And most psalms, there are lots of psalms of lament, but this psalm happens to be uh, the only psalm of lament that doesn't have even a hint of praise in it. It's, it's all lament, it's much like a lot of the chapters in the Book of Lamentations, actually. And, and this is Israel at the darkest, deepest point of her history, right? Uh, feeling as though God has forsaken her, feeling that pain, that bitterness of exile and destruction. And that's where we get to Psalm 89. And in my opinion, this psalm really epitomizes this third book of the Psalms uh, as uh, very succinctly putting into uh, expression the theological crisis that Israel faced in those days. And uh, we're not going to read the whole psalm, but just the psalm starts out talking about uh, the steadfast love of the Lord, right? And it uses this, these two key words, um, chesed, meaning like covenant loyalty or, or, or uh, faithfulness, and uh, usually translated loving kindness or mercy, chesed, and this word uh, uh, faithfulness, right, emunah. So we have these, these two words, both words appear seven times in this psalm. There's a, a highly concentrated here. And it's going on talking about God's faithfulness. In verse three, you said, I, made a, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I swore to David, my servant, I'll establish your offspring forever. I'll build your throne for all generations. And, and it goes on and it's uh, praising God and extolling him for his promises that he made to David. And let's jump down to verse... Um, let's look at verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever, his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my Torah and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me like the moon it shall be established forever a faithful witness in the skies selah and here it's a very uh significant selah because this is the point at which the song the the flavor of the psalm drastically changes so by the way all this stuff that the psalmist is saying so far uh this is drawn from God's covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7, and uh, where God promised uh, that there would always be a descendant of David on his throne, that his, this would be an a eternal throne, an everlasting throne over the people of Israel. And what happens in verse 38 of this psalm? But now... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. I mean, this, this psalm is trying to, you realize that the first 37 verses of the psalm have been declaring a truth the psalmist wants to believe, but is not visible in the present, Right. This, this psalm is set after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the Davidic 
dynasty has fallen. David's throne lies in ruins. It's unoccupied. And Jerusalem and the temple are in ruins. And the psalmist is saying, what happened? How could this happen? God made this promise. God promised David an eternal throne. And, and he is very eloquent in reciting all God's promises here. And yet now it's lying in ruins. How can this happen? And he goes on in verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Uh, how long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, your chesed of old? Where is your faithfulness that you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear with in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then this psalm ends with the doxology, just like uh, all the other books of the Psalms end with the doxology. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So the Psalm is expressing this theological crisis of the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the Davidic dynasty. And uh, I mean, this was a real crisis of faith for Israel to go through. I, you, you, you have to put it on par with the Holocaust as we think of it today, right? I mean, you, you look at how many people have questioned their faith because of the Holocaust. Well, that's the same sort of dynamic that's going on here. How, how can we believe in a God who is faithful to his promises when these promises are not being fulfilled in front of us, where, where we see, it seems as though God's promises have failed, right? And, and this this theological crisis reverberates throughout the entire Tanakh. We see uh, shockwaves of this showing up all throughout scriptures and, and different uh, ways of addressing this problem and uh, this, uh, this issue, right? So um, how can God be faithful to his covenant to David when David's throne lies unoccupied and in ruins? And the psalmist never comes to an answer, right? The psalmist bears his heart before God and doesn't try and cover it up with a trite answer like oh but god's always good the end right like, like he doesn't he doesn't try to just uh brush it off and and get on with his life he he dwells on this 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 painful moment and um you know there's there's something to that in in the psalms of lament that we see where they're not afraid to express themselves to god and and i think that's something an, an art that's been kind of lost in our our culture but uh but yeah, this question, what, what, is, what is the answer? Well, the only logical conclusion is that one day God will restore the Davidic dynasty, right? One day God will raise up a Davidic king to rule over a restored Israel. He has to because he promised. God's faithfulness requires that one day that will take place. And of course, this is the expectation of Messiah. In, in a nutshell. And this is where the messianic expectation comes. It comes out of this theological crisis of the destruction of the Davidic dynasty with the Babylonian exile. And since then, um, there has never been a restored uh, lit literal 
restored Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem. There has not been a Davidic king in a literal sense for over 2,500 years, right? We had, of course, we had the Hasmonean dynasty for uh, a couple hundred years just before the time of Yeshua, but uh, that didn't go over terribly well. I mean, I know we've just come through Hanukkah and at Hanukkah, we celebrate the Maccabees as, as the good guys uh, and for a valid reason. But the dynasty that, uh, they, that they, they started reigning as kings, this was called the Hasmonean dynasty, it, uh, it ended rather sadly. These were not Davidic kings. These were actually high priests. Well, they took over the office of high priest and they took over the office of kingship. And within a few generations, uh, there was a lot of corruption in that monarchy. And that monarchy ended with Herod's usurpation of, of the kingship. And so, you know, we've got this, this line of kings that um, comes to a rather inglorious end with Herod the Great. And this is a far cry from the restoration of Davidic monarchy. A lot of Jews were not happy about the Hasmoneans ruling as kings because, you know, like the Qumran community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a lot of polemics against uh, Hasmonean uh, rulers that you see. So, yeah, it was not all uh, positive attitude. All right, so this expresses the negative side. Uh, I want to look at um, Daniel the book of Daniel, this is where we see um, the theme of kingship uh, comes out really strongly. We're going to be looking particularly at chapters 2 and 7 of Daniel. And just a quick note, uh, if you've never noticed this before, there's a chiastic structure to these, uh, these chapters of Daniel. So we've got chapter 2 mirrors chapter 7. Uh, in both of those chapters, there is a vision or a dream of these four successive empires, right? In chapter three and in chapter six, these two stories mirror each other. Uh, we have Chadrach, Bishak, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. We have Daniel thrown into the lion's den, uh, very much a similar uh, kind of theme going on in those two stories. And then in chapter four, we have Nebuchadnezzar's pride and downfall. In chapter five, we have Belshazzar's pride and downfall. So, there's, there's this pattern that's going on here, right? Uh, and the point for our purposes today is that this, this uh, theme of four empires is repeated in the book of Daniel. And if you remember in our Torah portion that we just read this past week, we read in Genesis 41, 32, how Joseph comes to Pharaoh and interprets these dreams and says the dream was repeated because it is something that God has established for sure, and it's going to happen soon, right? Joseph had two dreams about what was going to happen. Um, the butler and the baker had dreams that were very similar, and Pharaoh has true dreams. Well, here we see, again, this doubling where this vision of these four successive empires uh, is is repeated to emphasize its certainty. So uh, just a quick summary. Again, we're not going to read through these passages, but in Daniel 2, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he has, you know, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle of thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Um, these represent four successive kingdoms 
In Daniel 7, those same kingdoms are represented by a lion, then a bear, then a leopard, and then a terrifying beast with four horns. We looked at this briefly last time when we were looking at the correlation with the book of Revelation and the beast in Revelation, which is that terrifying beast with ten horns, but also pulls in attributes of these other beasts, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Okay, so the first one is Babylon. The second one is Persia or Medo-Persia. Uh, the third one is Greece. Fourth one is Rome. But then there's this final kingdom that comes. In Daniel 2, it's described as a stone cut without human hands. In Daniel 7, it's described as one like a son of man. And this is the messianic kingdom or Israel. I just want to read uh, the description from Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45. Let's pull that up here. Okay, Daniel 2.44, and in those days, er, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. And if we jump down to uh, chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so... The, the point in these verses is that we've, uh, both, both chapters describe these four kingdoms that are succeeded by a final fifth kingdom. And the purpose of that final kingdom is to destroy those before it while remaining forever. This final kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never end. All these other kingdoms will come to an end. And of course, what do these four empires have in common? These are all empires that have ruled over the land of Israel. I mean, that's, that's the point of God spelling out these four six. He's not just giving world history for, uh, you know, for kicks. This isn't, uh, if not, why not include Genghis Khan? And the, um, why not include um, other empires, right? Like, like the reason why these specific kingdoms are listed is because these are the ones that had dominion over the land of Israel leading up to the establishment of Israel's independence. So, so the final messianic kingdom represents Jewish autonomy, right? Israelite autonomy over their own land. And by the way, sometimes uh, I think in, in some uh, Christian interpretation, we, we try to downplay, that we're, well, we're so used to downplaying the nationalistic aspirations of the Jewish people that we do not automatically associate God's kingdom with Israel. Uh, but if you remember, go back to Exodus 19, verse 6, one of God's purposes in choosing Israel was to establish a kingdom. He says, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? So God's, uh, God's working through Israel to establish his kingdom, and it will finally be in the last days that he will accomplish that, and this will be the uh, 
intersection of the Davidic covenant with God's covenant with Abraham, with all of God's covenants coming together to form this messianic era Israel, right? So if you asked your average first century Jew what the kingdom of God is, they would have said it's the restoration of the Davidic monarchy under King Messiah and the consequent restoration of Israel. God's going to destroy Rome, right? That's what this final, this fifth kingdom does. It destroys Rome. It, the, that rock hits the statue on its feet of iron and clay. That's Rome, right? So the whole system crumbles by destroying Rome. And so that's, that's what the kingdom is about. The, God's going to destroy Rome and set up an unending Israelite empire in its stead. All that to say, there are huge political ramifications to preaching the kingdom of God in the first century, right? In other words, when Yeshua is preaching the kingdom in first century Judea, the natural and logical conclusion is that he's coming to destroy Rome. The expectation of Rome's downfall, as we saw last time, it can be seen in bits and pieces throughout the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament. As we saw last week, the most blatant example of that is the book of Revelation, where we have recorded at length the downfall of Babylon. Uh, and of course, since then, we might say that other Babylons have risen up, but uh, it would have been understood by first century readers as a reference to Rome. Okay. So, with that in mind, how do we understand Yeshua's preaching of the kingdom? Based on everything we know from the Tanakh, we would expect the kingdom of God in Yeshua's teachings to be a literal, political, eschatological kingdom, right? This, so when Yeshua comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is at hand, it's, it's here, right? We would assume that means that, well, this is the end times. God's going to bring about the final consummation of all things, and uh, he's going to usher in the messianic era right away. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, and that hasn't happened yet. We still haven't seen a literal restoration of David's throne in Jerusalem. So how do we reconcile this? Um, that's the tricky thing, and that's what there have been mm, a lot of... Uh, scholarly ink spilled over trying to figure this out and, and different explanations and ideas out there. So um, we already brainstormed some possible ideas. Uh, here's a list. This is going to overlap with the list we already made. But these are five of the most uh, prominent proposals that have been put forward. So uh, option number one, Yeshua predicted a future kingdom that was still quite a ways off. So when Yeshua came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he really meant is repent for the kingdom of heaven will come in another 2,000 years or so. The problem is that's not what he said, is it? <laughs> the, this word, um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's, in Greek it's the word angiken, means it has drawn near, right? Like, not when in English we think of the word near as well it's it's close but it's not quite here yet I, I can kind of see it over there it's close it's near but but it's not right here that that's not what this term means in in, in Greek and and the terms underlying it in Hebrew as well it means to arrive to get here right uh, we're going to read today uh, Yeshua saying the kingdom of heaven has come upon you 
So how do we reconcile that? If it's all future, how does that make sense? Okay, so but that's one option. One option is that he's just predicting a future kingdom. Uh, option two, Yeshua predicted the immediate arrival of the end times and the messianic era. But of course he was wrong because the end times didn't come. And here we are 2,000 years later and the end times still haven't come. Uh, there are some scholars who propose this, that Yeshua was this um, end times uh, revolutionary fanatic kind of person. And he was preaching that the end of the world is coming. Here it is. Uh, kind of like those guys that put up those billboards, right? And and it didn't happen. And so uh, his mission kind of failed and then he ended up getting put to death and um, then they made a new religion out of it. <laughs> of course, as those of us who actually believe in Yeshua, this is blatantly false, right? We We don't accept that proposal. Uh, but but that's one proposal that some secular scholars have put forward that well he he thought the end of the world was coming but he was wrong so we can cross that one out uh, option number three Yeshua was proclaiming the kingdom of God as a timeless spiritual or ethical reality right so uh, there, there are many variations of this uh, actually that yeshua came to establish a spiritual kingdom he came to establish a new way of living for god's people um came to establish a a church a new people of god lots of different variations on this the biggest problem with all of these uh, under this third option is that it essentially discards everything the kingdom of God has ever meant to the Jewish people and in the prophecies of the Tanakh. And that's a problem, in my opinion, right? To teach that there will never be a literal restoration of Israel and David's kingdom is, in my opinion, to make God out to be a liar. There's a big issue with that. But nonetheless, that has been a common option that people have proposed. Option four, Yeshua taught the kingdom as both a present spiritual reality and a future physical reality. This is probably the most common view among evangelical Christians. Uh, and in my view, this is much closer to the truth. Uh, in this view, there's a distinction between the arrival of the kingdom, which took place at Yeshua's first coming, and its future consummation, which will take place at Yeshua's second coming. So it's a two-stage thing. Yeshua comes first time, he inaugurates the kingdom, but we have to wait till the second coming for it to come in its fullness, right? This, uh, it was dispensationalism that really revived this uh, perception because they began to believe in a literal thousand-year messianic reign, that when Yeshua returns to earth, he will set up a literal kingdom on earth. And that was a novelty as far as uh, Christian interpretation goes historically. For most of Christian history, the belief in a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth has been dismissed as heresy, because it's too Jewish, sounds too Jewish. That's the way some of the church fathers put it. They regarded millenarianism or heliasm, the belief in a literal thousand-year reign of Messiah on earth as a Jewish belief, and therefore wrong. Uh, that's where I think we can beg to differ. Okay, here's a fifth option. Maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. Yeshua proclaimed the arrival of the final messianic era as a real possibility contingent upon Israel's repentance. So in other words, 
at the time of Yeshua, if the Jewish people as a nation, including her leaders, had responded positively to Yeshua's call to repentance, God would have brought about the end times and the Messianic era 2,000 years ago. Of course, Israel didn't repent uh, as a whole. And so instead, Israel faced the destruction of the temple and the great, this great exile that has lasted for thousands of years. So that last option is, is somewhat radical uh, in terms of Christian interpretations. Uh, most Christians would maybe feel a bit uncomfortable with the idea that the end times, the date for the end times is flexible, that God could just arbitrarily change it. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, God, God can bring about the final redemption whenever he wants to, right? Uh, he's God. He can do what he wants. But, of course, we know that God knew ahead of time that Israel would reject Yeshua's message and that this rejection would facilitate the gospel going out to all nations. And so in his wisdom, he saw that this would happen and he um, did this. But, but regardless, this fifth option... Uh, means that the kingdom that Yeshua was offering was a serious offer. When Yeshua says, you know, if, if you repent, you, you can uh, have the kingdom, he meant it. This wasn't just a, a spiritual, fluffy, whatever, right? This, this, was, this was real. This was serious, a serious offer. It takes seriously Yeshua's preaching. Okay, so these are five different options. I'm sure there are many others we could add to this list if we wanted, but we've got to get going here. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to suggest here, and we'll, we'll uh, look at this as we go, and we can, uh, you can disagree with me if you want, but I'm going to suggest the correct answer is a combination of option four and option five. I think the kingdom being offered in the Gospels is the literal kingdom described by the prophets of the Tanakh involving the defeat of Rome and the restoration of Israel with Yeshua reigning on David's throne in Jerusalem. I think there are passages in Luke-Acts that only make sense if we assume such a kingdom. At the same time, Israel's failure to accept Yeshua's message does not mean the kingdom is eternally forfeited. All God's promises will one day come to pass, and I believe Right up to the end of Acts, Luke is still waiting for their literal fulfillment. There's this expectation we see in Luke-Acts of looking forward to that future fulfillment. And I think that Luke assumed it would happen much sooner than history has proven that it will actually be. I mean, um, yeah, uh, the apostles, I think, were hoping Yeshua would return in their lifetime. And, of course, I, I don't think they had any clue of the 2000 years that have happened between them and us, right? That would have been staggering for them. And maybe, maybe it's a good thing. They didn't know that <laughs> would have been depressing, but nonetheless, I think they had this, this expectation that these, this is all still going to be fulfilled. Even if it's postponed, it's still going to happen, right? We're still waiting for it today. But despite the postponement of the messianic era, there's still a sense in which we can grasp hold of the kingdom and its promises today. And we're going to see that come out a little bit in our, in our study today. All right. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11. Can I get a volunteer to read Luke 11? And we'll read verses 1 to 13. Okay, I can do that. Sure, that'd be great. 
And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend is mine. A friend of mine has come to me from a, from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because he is persistent, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? He is asked for an egg. He will not give him a scorpion, will he? If then, being evil, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Great. Thank you. Yeah, lots of neat things in here. Um, First of all, uh, if we compare the Lord's Prayer as it is in Luke with the version in Matthew, uh, there's a couple things, uh, interesting things we notice. Uh, first of all, the version in Matthew is longer, right? Uh, Luke seems uh, is, is a more abbreviated version. So uh, instead of our Father in Heaven, it just has Father, hallowed be your name, uh, your kingdom come. Uh, this, is, this is interesting. I mean, I'm sure we're all very familiar with the Lord's Prayer, but notice the centrality of the kingdom in this prayer. We're supposed to ask God to send his kingdom. That's one of, uh, I mean, that's that's the main thing in the prayer next to asking that God's name be sanctified and be hallowed, right? Um, and then uh, Luke has goes right to give us each day our daily bread. In, in Matthew, it's give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Luke is give us each day our daily bread. But yeah, uh, and then both have forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. It's uh, similar, uh, slight, slightly different language. Uh, and then Luke ends with lead us not into temptation. So it's a little bit shorter. Um, but I want to zero in on this phrase, our daily bread. Uh, this word, you know, daily, uh, it can actually also, uh, this may be a surprise, but it can also be translated, give us the bread of tomorrow. Uh, actually, the ESV has uh, a note, give us our bread for tomorrow, is another way of translating this phrase. In Greek, it's this word for daily or 
we're not quite sure how to translate it actually. It's this word epiusium. Uh, this word, this is the only, uh, this word only appears in the context of the Lord's Prayer in all of Greek literature. So we're not quite sure what it means, but there's a related term, epiusia, which means tomorrow, relating to tomorrow. So, so this uh, adjective it could be understood to be describing tomorrowly bread, bread of tomorrow, right? Well, what does that mean? Give us the bread of tomorrow. That kind of flies in the face of the way we're used to saying the Lord's Prayer, right? And it kind of doesn't make sense at first. Why would we pray for tomorrow's bread? Didn't Yeshua say, we're not supposed to worry about tomorrow? Well, uh, a lot of scholars actually see in here an allusion to the Messianic banquet, the feast of the coming kingdom. Think of uh, the manna in the wilderness. Now, if anything, at first glance, the manna seems to contradict this whole bread of tomorrow idea, because what happens if you try to gather your manna for tomorrow and leave it overnight? Well, it goes bad, right? It breeds worms and goes foul. And so you can't, you can never gather tomorrow's bread in the context of the manna in the wilderness, right? Well, except for one day a week. There was one day each week where you could gather bread for tomorrow. That was on Friday because that was the day before Shabbat. So you would not, there was no manna on Shabbat. You didn't go out and gather manna. So on Friday, you would gather twice as much. Shabbat symbolizes the kingdom, the messianic era. If we're getting some of tomorrow's bread today, we must be really close to the kingdom. In other words, not only are we asking for God's literal provision of literal food, our daily bread, when we pray this prayer, but we're also asking God to give us a little taste of some of the good gifts that he has stored up for us in the kingdom, the bread of tomorrow. This puts the rest of the passage in context, right? If we go down to uh, verse 9. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What are we asking for? What are we seeking for? What, what door are we knocking on? We're asking for the kingdom, right? Um, this is our great hope. This is what we're supposed to yearn for. We, this is what we're supposed to persistently and impudently be begging God for is the kingdom, right? We're supposed to be like that, you know, that guy who comes to his friend and because of his impudence, his friend gets up and gives him something. I mean, of course, God is not a neighbor who's annoyed with us and who sleeps or anything that, and our prayers never annoy him, but, but we're supposed to have this persistent attitude because if even an annoyed neighbor will respond to you when you're persistent about it, how much more will God respond when you're persistent? And the question for us here is, are we persistent in asking for the kingdom? Is that a persistent prayer on our lips? This also puts into context the mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 13, right? Um, in, if we go to, uh, in uh, Matthew's version, he says, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, in Luke's version, it clarifies it and says, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What, what's, what's the Holy Spirit got to do here? Well, everything, really. The, the Holy Spirit is a sign of the kingdom. And this is, there's a real emphasis on the Holy Spirit in Luke and, and the book of Acts. And if you haven't noticed, the uh, Holy Spirit plays a very big role in both Luke and in Acts. Uh, we saw the Holy Spirit coming up over and over again in the birth narratives of, of Yeshua and John the Baptist. And uh, we see it uh, coming up uh, over and over again in the book of Acts, right? And that's, that's uh, significant and intentional. 
because the Holy Spirit is a sign of the kingdom. You look through the Tanakh, all the prophecies of an end time outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is a sign of God's messianic era. So every time we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for Yeshua to return and establish the messianic era. But we're also asking for some of those good gifts to be given to us now in advance of the kingdom. And one of those good gifts is the Holy Spirit, whom we desire to experience now in this era in advance of the full outpouring that will come when Yeshua returns. So the Lord's Prayer is both an expectation and yearning for the future and a plea to bring some of that future into the present. Okay, let's uh, jump to Luke chapter eleven, fourteen to 26. And again, could I get a volunteer to read these verses? Uh, let's read Let's read verses 14 to 23. Would someone be willing to do that? I can. Sure, that'd be great. He was expelling a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the people were astounded. But some of them said, It is by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, that he expels the demons. And others, trying to trap him, demanded from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing what they were thinking, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, with one house collapsing on another. So if the adversary, too, is divided against himself, how can his kingdom survive? I'm asking because you claim it is by Beelzebul that I drive out the demons. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Sorry, do I go further? Uh, let's go to verse 23. Okay. When a strong man who is fully equipped for battle guards his own house, his possessions are secure. But when someone stronger attacks and defeats him, he carries off all the armor and weaponry on which the man was depending and divides up the spoils. Those who are not with me are against me, and those who do not gather with me are scattering. Great, thank you. All right, so um, in this passage, the Holy Spirit is is uh, proof of Messiah's ministry. Uh, the Holy Spirit working in Messiah's ministry is proof of the proximity of the kingdom, right? Uh, the, these, uh, the Pharisees accuse Yeshua of, well, it says um, some of them. It doesn't specifically say Pharisees in Luke, but uh, some of them accuse Yeshua of casting out demons using satanic arts, occult magic, right? They accuse him of being a magician. And uh, Yeshua comes back at them and says, you know, that doesn't make sense. How could Satan be attacking his own kingdom, right? And, um, and uh, then he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast them out, then the kingdom of God has 
come upon you. And this phrase, finger of God, it's, it's uh, quoting Exodus 8, 19. If you remember, uh, Moses is, uh, well, God is performing these plagues through Moses's hand, right? Uh, and there's uh, these, and th- these magicians, these Egyptian magicians uh, are mimicking the plagues. They're, they're doing these things through their magical arts and uh, their occult power. But they come to the point eventually where there's a miracle that they cannot duplicate. And what do they say? They, they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, right? Finally, they admit defeat and they're like, okay, <laughs> where, you know, this, this guy, Moses, he's just, he's not just a regular magician like we are. He, this is God's finger at work, right? And of course, in this passage, the Pharisees are accusing Yeshua of being a magician, just like Pharaoh's magicians, right? But Yeshua proves that to them, his ministry is not based on the occult, but on the spirit of God. Uh, he is not a magician. He's none other than the prophet like Moses, right? So if, if, uh, if Yeshua is not a magician, what's the other option? He's Moses or the prophet like Moses. He's standing in the role of Moses, not in the role of the magicians. So this finger of God is a sign of the kingdom, right? Uh, there's this clash, this contest between the, the satanic powers of the magicians and the powers of God. And Yeshua is setting up that same contrast, demonstrating that his casting out demons comes from the power of God and that this is therefore proof that God's kingdom has come. And then he tells this parable, parable of the strong man, right? Uh, A strong man can't be overpowered unless someone stronger than him binds him. Last time we talked about how in the end, Satan will be bound, right? And uh, how Yeshua's mission of of setting free his people from satanic powers, uh, satanic oppression, uh, demonic oppression, how this is a, a picture of the coming kingdom when Satan will be bound in chains, right? And uh, so this passage talks about, uh, I, I want to take a look at the way this is told in the different Gospels, because there's actually, um, there's an interesting difference going on here. In Matthew, here's how the, here's how the parable sounds. Can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he, unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may, he may plunder his house. So who's the strong man in this parable? It's Satan. Who is the one stronger than him? Who is the one who binds up the strong man? It is Yeshua, right? Uh, and this is, and what are the goods that he plunders? This is the people of Israel, right? This is just like when Moses went to Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go free. God said to God sent him there to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And Yeshua is on the same sort of rescue mission, rescuing his people from slavery to Satan. Right. And so this, this um, contrast that he set up by, by quoting that finger of God uh, verse, this is uh this is what uh, this verse is pointing to, right? This, the same sort of contrast, uh, just like Israel was slaves in Egypt and God 
came and redeemed them. So now God is redeeming his people from satanic oppression. And that's symbolized politically through the Roman Empire, right? This parable is saying Yeshua has the power over Satan. And this is what the kingdom of God means. Satan is bound. When Yeshua is casting out demons, he's giving a little foretaste of that kingdom when Satan will be bound. Um, Mark's version is very similar. Uh, it says, um, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Very similar to Matthew's. Luke's is actually a little different and there's some significance to that. It says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Notice how Luke's version of the parable is distinctly political and militaristic, much more so than Matthew and Mark. So some of the distinctives we see in Luke are, instead of a house, the strong man guards his aflane, his, his palace, right? In, his goods are in peace and irene, right? They're in peace. And, and this, this term is a buzzword in Roman propaganda, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that they were trying to maintain, right? Um, so as long as this strong man is guarding his palace, his goods are, he's able to maintain this Pax Romana. <laughs> and then this verb nikau in, in Greek, to conquer. It has strong militaristic uh, overtones. This is the only place this verb is used out of all the Gospels and, and the Book of Acts, or the Synoptic Gospels, I should say. Um, so he, he says, um, he overcomes him. He, he, he conquers him, right? That's a, that's a military kind of term that's being used. And then um, it talks about his armor, his panoplia, uh, panoplia, his armor. This is what you would expect of a Roman soldier. And finally, uh, the one who conquers this strong man divides his spoil, his skula. This sounds like warfare, right? So this strong man is set up as uh, a Roman soldier guarding a palace, and Yeshua is stronger than him and comes and conquers him and defeats him. This is the kind of imagery that's being used here. And so there's something, something very political about this, right? The goods that Yeshua is plundering from Satan are the people of Israel who are being held captive by Satan. Just like Moses came to deliver the people of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. It's the same sort of scenario. And maybe we can push this further uh, to apply this to how in Revelation, uh, Rome is the one that is is being opposed and that will fall. And it's the devil who gives Rome its power and authority. So by attacking the devil and his kingdom and bringing the kingdom of God, these are both a direct assault against Rome, right? We see this anti-imperial message uh, going on. Okay, there's a couple other passages I want to uh, look at quick. We don't have a lot of time, so uh, I'll just take a quick look. But in uh, Luke 12, Verses 31 to 34. So uh, Yeshua talks about um, this passage. He's, he's saying, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or about your body, what you'll put on. Um, and then he goes on and uh, 
Do not seek what you're to eat, what to drink. Do not be worried for all the nations of the world, the ethne, the, the, the Gentiles, all the Gentiles of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. We're exhorted to seek God's kingdom. And so the focus is on God's kingdom. And uh, in Matthew, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Um, it's all about the kingdom. And, and this, this, uh, the next verse is very interesting. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's the father's desire to give you the kingdom. How often do we think of that when we pray? When we say, thy kingdom come, we're asking God for something he already wants to give us. That adds power to our prayer. The question is, how badly do we want it, right? Are our thoughts in, in line with God's thoughts? Are our desires in line with God's desires? And then Yeshua exhorts them to sell, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is, in my opinion, very closely related to the repentance program that Yeshua lays out in the Sermon on the Mount slash Sermon on the Plain. Um, this is how you can usher in the kingdom, by doing uh, repentance and mitzvot, do these good deeds. Okay. Um, in Luke 12, 35 to 59, uh, again, we're not going to look in detail at this passage, but we have this exhortation to get ready, stay dressed for action, and be waiting for the master to come. Uh, and he talks about how we, do, um, we don't know when he's going to come back, right? This, this thief in the night imagery. And the point is that this implies there's going to be an interim before the kingdom uh, finally comes, right? It's not, it's not going to happen immediately. And I think Yeshua already knows that Israel is rejecting his message. And we see that paradigmatically laid out in Yeshua's first uh, first ministry episode in the gospel of Luke. And that is at the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown where he is rejected. And that sets up a pattern that will ultimately characterize his ministry as a whole. He comes to his own and his own reject him. Um, but the last thing I want to look at here is a parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. So if you turn to Luke 13 verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? By the way, this is, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure about this. <laughs> Suddenly I'm questioning myself, but I believe this is the first instance in Luke where we have a parable, where the parable is explicitly said to be describing the kingdom of God, right? We've had lots of parables that describe different things, but in this case, he's specifically trying to teach us something about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And then, Again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So, so this is, uh, both of these parables are about, are about the kingdom of God. I know that, uh, especially because of 
Passover, we tend to think of leaven as a negative image, right? So leaven is something bad. And, and I've heard some people try to say that this parable of the leaven is about how evil can spread. That's not what this is talking about. He's saying, he says, this is the kingdom of God. He's comparing, explicitly says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? To leaven. He's, he's, um, it's a different imagery. In this particular case, leaven is not a bad symbol, right? He's using it as a symbol of rapid growth, right? If you've ever, uh, of course, leaven in those days was not like a packet of yeast uh, that you buy from the grocery store. This is a sourdough batch that you save over from the previous batch. And if you've ever worked with sourdough, you know that it can uh, expand quite rapidly and get out of control, out of hand very quickly if you, if you let it. So, uh, it's speaking, both of these parables are speaking of something that starts out small and, and in fact hidden. Something that starts out hidden and then grows to take over in a, in a rapid way. This, this imagery of the birds of the air making nests in its branches, that's drawing on the imagery from Daniel chapter 4 uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. He has this dream of a tree and it grows and the, you know, the beast takes shade under its, uh, under its shade and the birds of the air nested its branches. This is talking about an empire, a global empire with all these different kingdoms residing in it in safety. That's the image of the kingdom here. So um, there's something about these parables that is a bit counter, uh, co contrary to what would probably be the popular conception of the kingdom. You know, if we if we just had the book of Daniel to go from, we would expect Yeshua to say something more like the, the kingdom of God is like a bulldozer that comes in and, and uh, knocks down everything in its path and then takes over the world that way, right? Uh, or this tornado that sweeps through and makes a big menace. But instead, he describes something that starts out very small, very insignificant, and, and hidden from plain sight. This is the kingdom, but it grows to something. Yeshua hasn't lost the vision for a global kingdom, for global domination, really. This is, the kingdom is God's plan to take over the world, if we can put it that way. Uh, and so it starts small, but it grows. And notice the connection between the parable of the mustard seed, uh, well, both of these parables, and the parable of the sower. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. In the parable of the sower, it's the response to Yeshua's ministry that dictates whether or not there will be fruit. In the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom grows regardless of the response of the people. Right? Back then, we were still wondering, uh, as you know, if we're reading through Luke for the first time, we're wondering how are people going to respond to, you know, John the Baptist had this message of repentance to avert the coming judgment and to receive the kingdom. Yeshua is preaching this message of repentance to avert the coming judgment and receive the kingdom. What are, how are the people going to respond? Well, so far we've been getting a, a largely negative response, at least from Israel's leaders. And that's going to be uh, galvanized here as we get further on in the in the book of uh, Luke but these parables give us a different perspective that we see regardless of the response of the people God's kingdom is going to prevail and his kingdom is going to grow grow and eventually take over the world but it starts out hidden it starts out insignificant and that's something that is uh 
perhaps counterintuitive for those who were expecting the kingdom. All right, we're going to stop there and I'll open it up. Uh, any questions or, or thoughts? I was just thinking when you said it starts out insignificant that when Yeshua came into the world, he came in in a very insignificant and unknown way. Yeah, that's true. And Luke gives us the, the most vivid portrait of that out of all the Gospels. I hadn't heard that idea of all the birds in the air nesting in its tree, of that being all the countries of the earth living in peace and, and hadn't thought of it as, uh, you know, world domination. <laughs> mm. But uh, yeah, because he says that everyone from everywhere will be coming to Jerusalem to worship, right? And that yeah. those who refuse, they are punished. Right. Yeah, and actually Luke brings that up um, later in this uh, chapter, chapter 13. He talks about, in verse 29, and people will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Um, so there's this, this expectation that people are going to come from, like the, the whole world will be flocking to Jerusalem and uh, taking shelter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, and you know, I've, I've thought of that, both um, the birds of the air and leaven have been previously associated with negative things, wouldn't you agree, in, in most cases? Yeah. And so, so, so uh, I mean, that may be partly because until now, until that time, the nations have been a bit of a thorn in, the, of, in Israel's flesh. I mean, they, <laughs> they've been something that had been against Israel. But it's interesting when you look at the at the festivals. The one there's one festival where leaven is actually commanded and to be part of the festival proceedings, and that's a festival that also is associated with the coming into the nations, isn't it? But um, yeah, Shabbat. yeah, that's right. And uh, so I, that's kind of a way that I've I've thought before that maybe, maybe that figures it out that. Um, in, in the end, the nations are, are welcome and there will be a redemption uh, that, that extends even unto them, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good connection. I hadn't thought of that before. But yeah, yeah, with Shavuot and what we see in Acts chapter 2 with um, the good news being proclaimed in all languages to go out to all the nations. There's, yes. That's, yeah, we, that's a really neat connection. All right. Well, if there's... Uh, no other uh, thoughts or comments? I think we'll call it a night. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.